Well, we are in the final week in the Gospel of John with a sermon series I started, I think, last September and tended to just do for, I don't know, maybe the fall. And, and I, you know, I called it in my own notes, uh, the master and the disciple. And here we are almost a year later coming to the end of this, and it, we've really only dealt with half of the book of John, really the second half. And this week we are at the tail end of chapter 21, really the last several verses. So while chapter 21, it addresses a lot of things. Uh, I think John in particular addresses the question, uh, how will Jesus be revealed to those, really of future generations, who do not see him? That is, how will people come to faith, come to believe in him, when they were not eyewitnesses to everything that John has written about, which, by the way, is what, like 99.999% of all Christians historically. So two weeks ago, we saw that it was through uh, the word and the sacraments, the means of grace as they have become uh, to known, known as, through which Jesus, he still speaks and still draws people to himself. So in this regard, we gathered here this morning are no different from those who came to faith directly from the apostles preaching, what, 2,000 years ago or so. And last week we looked at the importance, uh, this is really the middle section of chapter 21, the importance of under-shepherds, that is, pastors and elders who preach and teach this word. And of course, they're not the only people who preach and teach this word, but within the church, this is the way Christ has structured things, and who are in turn called to guide and protect and discipline Jesus's flock, remembering that the church is not their church. This church is not my church. It doesn't belong to me. This is Christ's church, and we belong to him. So this week we see uh, the church's calling from Jesus to, uh, together as one people to remain uh, or to abide in Christ. It's the same word in Greek not only as one of the fundamental ways, abiding or remaining, one of the fundamental ways of understanding our life with Christ and each other, but also as a very important, really fundamental way by which Christ makes himself known to the world. So our text is, again, John 21. We're going to pick it up with verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is that that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this testimony from your servant, John, who was an eyewitness, who was beloved by you, who drew near to you, who loved you in some ways more than the other disciples. We thank you for his eyewitness testimony. We thank you for his life and living out faithfully in uh, dependence on you. And we pray the same for us, not that we would be John, but rather we might be like him, that we would have eyes of faith, that we would see you for how beautiful and incredible you are, that our hearts would be set on you, that we would know just what a treasure we have in Christ indwelling us, and that in turn, everything we would do uh, in this life and the next would be based on that, and it would be in relationship to that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at uh, Jesus' public restoration of Peter after he had denied Jesus three times. And I don't think, when you look at that passage, uh, well, I certainly don't think Jesus was being harsh, but I, I don't think he was being nice either. You know, being nice is what the world means by kindness, and it basically means... Uh, you'll go with the flow or <laughs> in a superficial, you know, I don't want to offend anybody uh, sort of way. And that's, I'm sorry, that's not Jesus. Jesus was not nice. He just wasn't. Jesus in his kindness, like any good physician, will gladly make things awkward or painful in order to heal us. Was he gentle? Yes. Was he kind? Yes. Was he compassionate? Yes. Was he nice? I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, if you look at niceness as the way it is kind of defined in America today, it kind of looks like love, but it is the opposite of it because we refuse to actually go the distance. We refuse to actually speak truth in love to people. So while Jesus was kind to Peter, it was also a, a vulnerable and uncomfortable moment for Peter, too. So Peter himself, if you just consider his life and what he's been through up to our verses we're looking at today, Peter, you know, he was a big-hearted man. He was. He was a big-hearted man prone to make big claims. Gregarious might be the right word for him. So, for example, you know, the same man, listen to this, the same man who walked on water with Jesus, also in the same episode, quickly looked away from Jesus, lost his confidence in him, and started to sink. The same man who, you know, speaking for the disciples, claimed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, a claim that got him the nickname Peter, you know, the rock, and he got that nickname from Jesus, uh, soon after tried to convince Jesus that crucifixion was something Jesus should avoid. And Jesus, in response, called him Satan, uh, the tempter. So, you know, in the same basic episode, same time period from rock to Satan is, is a pretty big swing. So the same man who, after Jesus ascended into heaven, boldly preached at Pentecost, publicly preached at Pentecost, and stood up to the Sanhedrin, which was no small thing, refusing to stop preaching about Jesus at risk to his own life, was also the same man when cultural pressure came from Jewish Christians, quit having table fellowship with Gentile Christians, which was a move of saying, I don't think they're really Christian. 
a move that resulted in Paul, who himself was an incredibly serious Jew, called him out publicly for it. That was when Peter was mature in his faith that that happened. So even though Peter was clearly a leader in Christ's church, he was also a mixed bag, and thankfully so, because we are all, right, a mixed bag. And we see that in, in view in our passage today. So the previous section that we looked at last week ends with Jesus telling Peter that he would die by way of crucifixion. And it's a, a moment uh, hearkening back to a scene in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, and, um, and again, uh, calling him uh, there, Jesus calling him uh, Peter. You know, you're the rock, now you follow me. That, the whole scene we looked at last week calls back to that. And then in verse 20, with those words ringing in his ears, that you will be crucified, yet you are to follow me. You are to feed my sheep. Peter turns to see the beloved disciple, John, already following Jesus. John didn't have to be told. He's already doing the deed. So starting with chapter 13, there is, as you look at, at the Gospel of John, what appears to be kind of a competition or maybe a rivalry. And certainly there is a subtle comparison being made between John and Peter, who were both leaders in the early church. So Peter is clearly the vocal, the vocal leader of the disciples. But John is closer to Jesus than Peter is. That's chapter 13. In fact, uh, John mentions that. He's like, this is the beloved disciple, the one who was resting on Jesus' chest at the, the Lord's Supper, if you remember that scene, and Peter had to say to John, hey, 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 ask him who's going to betray him. So Peter didn't have that kind of access, but John did. And so Peter had to go through John, in a certain sense, to get to Peter. Now, Peter makes huge claims about his faithfulness to Jesus, but only John, only John, is called the one Jesus loved. Now, by the way, that distinction does not mean that Jesus did not love his other disciples. Of course he did. It's rather an indication of how closely John had set his heart on Jesus, and it was more so than Peter. And Peter tries to follow Jesus uh, to his sham trial, if you remember this, we covered this in months past, at, at the high priest's house. But of all the disciples, only John has access to that house. And in turn, he gains entrance for Peter. And Peter, when, when questioned by servants of the high priest, you know what happens. He denies Jesus three times and he flees. John never does. And he publicly follows Jesus to the cross. At Mary Magdalene's report of Jesus being alive, having seen Jesus resurrected, both Peter and John run to the tomb. But John, he outruns Peter, and he gets there first. And both men look in the tomb, but John believed first. In chapter 21, what we looked at two weeks ago, uh, when both men were out fishing together, and remember, both men were fishermen, uh, from the area of Galilee. It was John who first recognized Jesus by his voice, even as it was Peter who, in response to John's word to him, dove in and started following, or swimming, to Jesus. And so here, you know, Peter is called to follow Jesus, and he turns to find that John again has beat him 
to the punch and is already following Jesus. So Peter asks Jesus, Lord, what about that guy? What about that guy? That's, that's the, the tenor of, of what he's saying. And Peter's question you know, has the character of, of what are you going to do with this guy over here? I, you called me to follow you. How about him? Right? It's like two brothers who are upset with their dad. And, it, and, you know, and it could be a sense of jealousy or certainly there is the sense of rivalry there. But I think it has more to do with what Peter heard Jesus just say to him. If Peter is called to feed Jesus' sheep and then die a horrible death, what's John's calling? What's John's calling? What about that guy? And Jesus' answer is perfect. And parents, you've, you've all done this. I guarantee you, if you have more than one kid, you've all done this. It's basically, what's that to you? What's it to you? How is this any of your business? You worry about you, and you follow me. And the way... Uh, Jesus says it, though, it's a little, it, you get the tenor there, but it's, it's a very particular way of saying it. He says, if it is my will, but he remain until I come. And that, that's, you know, that was, that statement, that was and that is both easily misunderstood, and John actually addresses that misunderstding, because this became a misunderstanding in the early church. But it also connects back, his way of saying that, and John repeats it, it connects back to a familiar theme in John's writings. Now, the misunderstanding is that people thought Jesus said that John would not die until Jesus came again, which that phrase, come again, is a reference to Jesus' second coming. So the misunderstanding there with this is twofold. First, Jesus never said Jesus, that John would not die. He doesn't say that. Jesus was giving a hypothetical situation to Peter, like any good parent does with two warring siblings. If Peter was going to die in service to Christ through crucifixion, what's it to Peter? If Jesus chose to let John live without dying until his second coming, which could be a long time. It's the same calling to follow Jesus, but two different plans, two different purposes that glorify Jesus. So if Jesus is Lord and God, then his plans for his people are the paths they will individually, and the paths they eventually take in, in service to that plan. Though they may be different, they're both right and good, and they won't necessarily look the same person to person. So Jesus is essentially saying, Peter, you quit worrying about my plans for John. You worry about what I've called you to do and get on with it. So, for example, I recently caught up with one of my best friends from seminary who I met, I don't know, 24 years ago, something like that. He, and he's serving as a pastor in Boston. And his last two years of church work, well, if I'm being kind, they've been fairly unpleasant for him. Even as my past two years, I think have been pretty great. And the temptation is to compare our circumstances to someone else's circumstances and question what God is doing. Well, what about that? How come he's got a good walk and how come mine's not? Now, is it fair that my friend Bruce has had more, a far more difficult road these last two years than me? Is it fair? Well, what about 10 to 12 years ago when our circumstances were almost exactly reversed? Was that fair? Well, no, but fairness has got nothing 
to do with it. Let me say that again. Fairness has nothing to do with it. See, the fairness that Christians enjoy is that we are united to the same Lord through the same Spirit. That's why Paul talks about there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free. That's a statement about what Christ does for us and how we are all the same in him. I mean, that's the basis of our equality. Fairness is not rooted in how happy we are or what jobs we have or how financially well off we are or how the last two or 20 years have gone for us. You see, we are God's workmanship and he uses all of us together in just the ways he sees fit. And while our circumstances are different, our calling to follow him is the same. Peter and John were both called to follow. And where that calling happens and how it specifically works itself out is on God. And I have no doubt a hundred years from now when we are all gone, a hundred years from now when we are all gone, we, are, we will marvel at the symphony of salvation he composed and, and our place within it. Now, the second misunderstanding John addressed uh, centers on the hope or the expectation, really, of some in the early church uh, that Jesus would soon return. I mean, very soon return. And you can see that expectation in places like Acts chapter 1, when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And their hope was that Jesus would, at that moment... Bring the promised new creation, the full, visible rule of God over all things, like what you see in Isaiah 25, and really what we confessed in Isaiah uh, 2 earlier, uh, or even just think Revelation 21 and 22, that they were thinking, is it going to be now that we get this in full, full orb flower, like it's, it's full on? And in reality, with his ar- arrival on the scene, well, as we, we professed earlier, that, that project has already begun. We, as his people, have feet both in the new creation and this present darkness. We, we straddle two ages at the same time. And, that, and in a lot of ways, that, that, that straddling goes right through the middle of our hearts. So even so, you know, the fullness of that kingdom clearly is not here yet. So Jesus' answer... To their question, it, it absolutely did not meet their expectations. He says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which is the mark of that new kingdom, by the way, and new creation, and you will, by my witness, be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So If you come across, this is really just an aside, if you come across anyone, a pastor, theologian, TV personality, some guy with a bunch of charts, uh, who claims they know when Jesus is coming again, uh, just know that person is a charlatan. Chances are they're asking for money, too. They're a charlatan. At the very least, if we're going to be charitable, they're just deluded. They don't know. In Matthew, for example, even Jesus claims not to know when his second coming will be. So some very thoughtful scholars who I respect run the gamut from, I don't see how Jesus isn't coming back soon. I saw a pastor in this denomination on Twitter this morning say that very thing. 
And it runs the gamut from that to, oh no, we are in the early stages of the church age and it may be thousands of years before he returns. That's a pretty wide margin of opinion. So who's right? Who's right? Misses the point. It misses the point. It's not for us to know when Christ will return in his full glory. No, our calling is to remain. It's to abide until he returns. It's why, though we are culturally very different from the churches in the New Testament, our practices as the people of God are the same. We are gathered around the word, the sacraments, and prayer as the people of God united to Christ and to each other. What you see happening in the book of Acts is what we are doing too. Our dress is different, our building is clearly different, our language is different, all kinds of cultural things are different, but the practices in the same God are the same. Even so, you know, some scholars think that, that as apostle, after apostle died, because of you know, that first misunderstanding that John would remain until the second coming, the early church, or at least some in the early church, started looking at John in his old age. You know, he was most likely the last remaining apostle, and they wondered, oh man, is the kingdom of God going to show up in its fullness soon? Because he's not going to die, remember? And John, he's absolutely shutting that view down. He is shutting that view down. Even as the language he uses here, because it's Jesus' language, points to something very true and very important about the church. So I think John's language points to something that Jesus taught in his upper room discourse that is a major theme in First John, you know, his pastoral letter to one of his churches. If the church is calling as, as typified with Peter is to love Jesus by feeding his sheep, and the church is to do this work until he returns, that's our calling too. The church's calling is typified with John is to follow Jesus by abiding or remaining with him until he returns. And it's not one or the other. It's not do I abide or do I feed? It's both. It's both. The church does all of these things. And the word that's, that's tra translated here in our passage, remain, is more often than not in the rest of John's uh, corpus here is, is translated as abide. And it's like what we see in, in John 15, verses 4 and 5. This, again, is from the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you can't tell, that concept of abiding is really important. How many times does he say it? Just in two, two verses, right? It's a really important verse, and in a lot of ways, it is a summary of the Christian life. And that same word, abide, shows up 16 times in 1 John which tells us just what an important concept it is for us. You know how English teachers, if you're, if, they're, if you're doing English composition, they tell you don't use the same word over and over again, right? You want to vary your words. You want to be interesting and use similes, all that. That's not how Hebrew writers work. If they want you to get it, they repeat the same word like a hammer. And for John to use that 16 times in 1 John, it's like, wake up, this is key. Right? So let me just read a few examples from chapter 2 of 1 John. This is 1 John 2 5. 
But whoever keeps his word, that is Jesus, in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's 1 John 2, 24. Let what you heard from the beginning, that is John's preaching, abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then just four verses later, 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Okay, so much there. It's awesome. Uh, I'm going to go into so much more detail after Labor Day in a sermon series I'm starting up that's entirely about that concept of in him. It's, It's entirely about union with Christ and our Christian identity. In the meantime, if you just pay attention to John's language here, it's, it's almost virtually the same as what you'll find in Paul's letters too. That Just go looking for in him as you read through Paul or in John. You'll see it. So if you are a Christian, then you are literally, not figuratively, you are literally united to Jesus. Or as they say over and over again, again, go looking for it. You are in him. It's like what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So both John and Paul see things the same way. We are no longer autonomous individuals who are sovereign over our own lives, who have the responsibility to figure things out for ourselves. No, that's a modern myth. It's idolatry. And just look around. How's it working out? Our culture seems like it's uh, well-adjusted and uh, mentally healthy and stable to you. This lie has been perpetrated for 400 years years on mass the christian message is exactly the opposite so just as the father and the son are one through the indwelling of the spirit that's what's so big about his baptism right so too through jesus and the indwelling of that same spirit we have been united to god the father we are united to christ he dwells within us so much so that we can no longer rightly see ourselves as merely Paul or John or Peter, but rather as Paul in Christ, John in Christ, Peter in Christ. And it's not that we have lost ourselves or become like puppets or robots, which in our cultural moment of hyper-individualism is a huge fear for people. In fact, when we really start walking through this, this, this doctrine in a few weeks, some people will start to think this feels a little creepy. This feels a little creepy that God would be in us, as if we are walled off and nothing should come within us ever. No, what's creepy is being alone. What's creepy is not having the Spirit. And it's more like how a good marriage works, where you are no longer merely you, but you are united to another person who has a claim on you. It's why you know, the Bible teaches both that, that marriage is a fundamental change of existence, where two individuals that are fundamentally different but complement each other in biology and gender and disposition come together to create one new identity, 
where neither individual personality is lost, even as they are united as one relationship, one fleshness, and from that bond, new life comes. And this relationship also anticipates. It is a living, physical, spiritual symbol that points us to the life God intended for us with himself. No wonder modern America rejects it. No wonder. It's why Paul does not hesitate. He is not embarrassed in the slightest to compare Jesus and his church to a husband and a wife. It's also why he does not shy away from gender roles in corporate worship. You know, our very bodies are living symbols that point to the reality of union with Christ, just like baptism and the Lord's Supper does. You know, so to abide with Jesus is not merely to engage in a few Christian practices or to pursue a moral agenda. It is to pursue Jesus himself as the goal of your life, growing in your relationship to him. So just as I am not Rob, but Rob plus Meg, and just as I don't merely pursue my wedding vows or particular moral commandments related to marriage, but rather pursue her in a life of commitment and repentance, so too, and even more so, I'm not merely Rob, I am Rob in Jesus. And my calling is to follow Jesus by abiding in him. So Jesus, think about this now, Jesus was closer to John, the beloved disciple, after his ascension into heaven and the giving of the Spirit than he was in our passage, passage when John was, was physically right beside him. I mean, just think on that. I mean, that is the radical, crazy claim of the Bible, that the God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them has chosen to dwell with us through his Son in the power of the Spirit. And that dwelling is not something that is somewhat near to us, like what Israel enjoyed, you know, first with the tabernacle in the temple, or like we see with Jesus eating breakfast with his disciples. But his dwelling is literally in us. And the world really struggles to get a grasp on this. In fact, they can't. I was listening to an interview between Lex Friedman, who is uh, an MIT professor, researcher, and some kind of smart kid stuff, and uh, this author, I always forget her name, Susan Cain, who wrote this incredible book called uh, Quiet. And it's about how introverts uh, actually really uh, run a whole lot of business, but it's extroverts who tend to get you know, all, all the attention. So think John versus Peter, right? And what was so interesting to me, because neither of these people are Christian, and they are talking about their, one was a lawyer, one was you know, a researcher, whatever. They're both talking about things that they think are transcendent and things that, and one of them says, I think this is what Christians are talking about when they talk about having an experience of God. And so one was talking about Leonard Cohen, the musician, uh, and one was, was talking about Jack Kerouac, Kerouac and his, you know, on the road. And I'm listening to this, I'm like, no, 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 those things point to what you're missing. Those things point to what you're missing. If you're moved by a piece of music, which I can easily be moved by a piece of music in which my emotions get caught up and I start getting teary-eyed and I try to hide from my family, all that sort of thing, that's not union with Christ. That's a taste. That's a taste. It points you to what you're missing. 
They were talking about heartbreak and how everyone should go through the heartbreak of a breakup or of, of loss because then you feel deeply what love really is. And I said, yep, I, I agree with that. That is a taste. That is a taste that points you to something deeper. So there is a certain sense, brothers and sisters, in which when we talk through union with Christ, the world is not going to get it. Trying to, to explain what the experience of that is is very difficult. You could talk about music. You talk whatever, right? But when you have it, you know it. It feels differently. It's why Herman Bovink could write, the gospel is simply a joyful message, not an obligation, but a promise, not a duty, but a gift. It's not that he thought the Christian life is one blissful experience after another. It's not. No, what makes the gospel a joyful message is, is who that message is about. Jesus and what he offers to give us, which is life together with him. And that begins right now. That's why that, that great, you know, old kind of spiritual classic, you know, and he walks with me and he talks with me. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, you listen back to that and it's kind of cheesy now to me. Maybe it's because I'm Gen X. I don't know. But it's right. I know him. He walks with me. He talks with me. He moves me. Every moment of every day? No, I don't feel it like that. But there are times, Christian, where you know it. And you can feel it. And he's with you. Well, in verse 24, John confirms that he is both the author of this book and the one known as the beloved disciple. And in turn, he claims his witness, his testimony, is true. And the community that received his gospel, and remember, he wrote this to particular people. They've been planted by him. They knew him. They had been shepherded by him. They knew him by his life, which again is an important fundamental way in which the world comes to know that Jesus is the Christ. And so John ends this written testimony, which by the way continues to speak Christ to us thousands of years later. He says that there were many other things that Jesus did. And like he says in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, he says, these are, are written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. He then adds, were every one of them, that is, everything that Christ did to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, on first read, that sounds almost like a fairy tale ending, you know, and they lived happily ever after. And it seems kind of out of place with the rest of his gospel. But I think what John has in mind is that Jesus did far more than any one gospel account could ever say, let alone four you know, canonical accounts. And in turn, Jesus has not stopped bringing people to himself. He has not stopped expanding his kingdom. His work is far from over, and here we sit. And here we sit. So we do not know when Christ will return. It could be tomorrow. That'd be awesome. It could be thousands of years from now. That too would be awesome. Frankly, whatever the time, it does not change our calling to follow him. It does not change our calling to abide with him and to grow in him. And what a privilege that is. You know, this, as, as Bobbing says, it's not an obligation. It's not a duty. It's a promise and it's a gift and it is all for you. Well, let me pray for us and we will we'll end our time together. Heavenly Father, the gift of Christ is so good.
And perhaps like, I don't know, birthday cake that we've eaten and eaten and we lose the taste a little bit and we lose the impact of it. We've lost the richness of what we have in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would work in us through your spirit, that we might see Jesus more, that we would abide with him more, that we would come to see how much he walks with us, how much he is talking to us, how much he loves us, and what a gift of life we have in him. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.